Hi there, everyone. I'm Naomi Meller, and you're listening to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with interesting, unusual, and inspiring careers. My guest today is a woman who has smashed through many a glass ceiling in the world of science with grace, endeavor, and success. She is Dame Athene Donald, Professor of Experimental Physics at the University of Cambridge and the first ever female professor of physics at one of the most historic universities in the world. Her mind is undoubtedly brilliant and her capacity to unpick complex theories and principles that most of us wouldn't have a hope in hell of understanding is legendary in her field. But she is more than just an academic working away on scientific research in a lab. Athene is a massive advocate of increasing equality in science. In in addition to her busy day job, she regularly gives talks and lectures to encourage girls into physics, and from 2010 to 2014 was the University of Cambridge's very first gender equality champion. She also writes a successful blog on the politics and economics of science, recently discussing everyday sexism, toxic environments in the workplace, and the impact of Brexit in academia, to name a few. Athene is a Fellow of the Royal Society and has been awarded the Faraday Medal and the L'Oreal UNESCO Award for Women in Science. She is quite the woman. I started by asking her her to give us a brief overview of what her work entails. Okay, so soft matter is stuff that's very familiar to people. It's things like food or paint or plastics. And unlike hard condensed matter, it's stuff that deforms on a timescale that people can see in the everyday world, if you like. And biology obviously fits into that. If you think about tissue, it's squidgy, it's it's easily deformed. And so it's a natural sort of partner in that. Um, but I approach biological physics from the physicist's perspective, my biology Um, It's not perhaps as advanced as it might be. And I got into that from studying food, which, if you like, is dead biology. Um, And specifically, I started looking at starch, which is very familiar to people from the things they eat. But we were trying to understand what happens when you cook the starch grains you get out of the plant. And we used a standard physics technique of x-ray scattering so a bit like looking at the structure of um, the double helix of DNA or something but we were using it at a slightly larger length scale to look at the packing of the molecules in the starch granule and hence try and understand what happens when you cook it and water enters the granule and the granule swells so that's what got me into it and it is an area that has become Uh, If you like fashionable, at the time I started, people thought that something as complex as starch was too complex for a physicist and that was the wrong kind of material to study. But now biological physics and applying the understanding from physics to biological systems has very much become an area that lots of people do. So when you started in this area, um, you said it was a little bit unfashionable, perhaps. how how was that to begin with and, and how did you start to forge your career at a time when perhaps traditional physicists might have been a little bit sniffy about the area that you wanted to in, work in or were interested in? Um, well, people definitely were sniffy about it. And um, you know, I was told this wasn't what phys- physicists did. But I was um, supported by uh, the guy who, who was then head of department, uh, Professor Sam Edwards, who was very much driving this area of, of food research. 
And so having him support me and physics is what physicists do was immensely important. Mm. Uh, nevertheless, you know, one has to be fairly, if you like, bloody minded about it and just get on with the things that you think are the right things to do and that the interesting things to do. I mean, it was a very interesting area because it was untapped, if you like. And and um, you've said previously that you uh, knew that physics was for you from the age of 13 when you started studying physics. What is it about physics that really excited you initially and probably more importantly keeps you interested and has sustained your career over you know, what has been a very long and, and stellar path over the last 20 or 30 years? I think when I first did it, it was simply that to me, it it enabled me to look at the world and, and make some sense of some quite basic things, you know, heat, light and sound, which are typically what one does at school. Mm. It, you know, they're very relevant subjects and um You know, I I find it very difficult to say, why did I want to do it? I just knew that that's what satisfied me. Mm. And to some extent, I suppose that's still the case, that I am curious. I think curiosity is, the well, one of the hallmarks of a scientist, Mm. that they always want to know more. They always want to ask more questions. And physics, the the application of... um, modeling and understanding how molecules pack together and therefore what that means is just what satisfies me and so if I might distinguish that from chemistry where you're typically and chemists may hate this but I you know to me chemists think about individual molecules Mm -hmm. and the way two molecules might interact whereas I'm interested in things where you've got collections of molecules interacting it's a larger length scale uh and you're looking at uh, sort of physical rather than chemical interactions. Hmm. It's very interesting. Um, and getting started in physics, you um, went to an all-girls school, as did I. And, um, you know, I certainly at my school, it was expected and encouraged that girls would take science subjects. There was never an issue about the fact that science was for boys or that that girls couldn't do physics or anything like that um do you have any thoughts about how to encourage girls at schools and particularly in mixed schools perhaps um that physics is an is a subject for them because the statistics about girls taking a-level physics are slightly depressing um you know yes. the latest one is sort of 78 percent of of people sitting a-level physics are boys and I, you know, I sort of find it a little bit sad that um, that girls in mixed schools perhaps aren't don't find it quite so easy as um, as in girls in girls' schools where science is encouraged. And obviously, not everyone can go to a single sex school, and there's many other good reasons why mixed schools have their advantages. But I was just wondering whether you had any thoughts on that, and in terms of improving A level, particularly uptake of physics for girls. Well, I think the issues start really young. I mean, a lot of the interventions are done around GCSE level, but I think by then it's far too late that the sort of cultural messages that young girls receive at seven, say, are incredibly strong that, that you know, the idea that girls might help their parents rewash or a tap or play with Meccano or, or whatever it may be, that there is still this sort of... Um, 
sort of unconscious stereotyping that goes on from very early on. And I think that means that both that um, girls perhaps have less um, experience of thinking in three dimensions, of manipulating uh, puzzles and things, um, and therefore they have less aptitude and it becomes a vicious circle. And so I think those girls who do study physics often have to be consciously bucking the trend. And maybe you know, I, I've never worked out if it's peer pressure or parental or media or teachers or what. I don't know where, you know, if a girl says, I want to do maths and physics at A-level and people say, really? You know, it, it, it doesn't take much, I think, to, to um, perturb uh, an adolescent girl's confidence. Mm. And I think it's just that subtle, really, that's not normal, that, that pushes them back. Mm. Yeah, that's. I think that's really true, isn't it? And knocking confidence in girls at an early age or, or lack of encouragement of girls at an early age is, is something that's really has long-term consequences that people don't necessarily see, I think. I think that's right. And, you know, people say, oh, but girls are doing better in exams. And that's obviously statistically true. But do they believe that better? No, I don't think they do. I think a lot of them think, oh, it's just because I worked hard. I'm not brilliant. Mm. Uh, and, and I, you know, how do we do this to our children? And I went to talk at the school a couple of weeks ago. And I was talking to mixed six formers. And the girls... You know, I was talking about my science, but I was also talking about my career. And the girls were saying, wow, that's really interesting. And, you know, I hadn't thought of the challenges for, for girls like that. And the boys were saying, essentially, I, we don't believe you. We think, you know, there's just girls don't like it. Mm. And, I, and I was thinking, you know, if the 16, 17-year-old boys think like that, that message must come across. You know, I was being given a lesson in evolutionary biology that, that girls just wanted to stay at home and do the cooking sort of thing. Yeah. And I was thinking, gosh, this is terrible. <laughs> And when you started in the physics department at Cambridge, you were the only woman, is that correct? No, not strictly. I was the first female to have a permanent lectureship, but there were other women around, but it, and I didn't realise that this was at the time, but they were on soft money. Um, so they weren't, if you like, employed as lecturers by the university. And, and that was completely invisible to me. It never crossed my mind. And it was only after I'd become very visibly the first female professor in physics that I realised that actually... I had also been the first lecturer. Gosh, yeah. And and have you encountered um, significant overt uh, sexism or, or discrimination that you are aware of? Or do you think that it's more still a kind of covert? Um, yeah, I think it's, de- <laughs> I think it's def- unconscious. Unconscious, well, yeah. It's unconscious and it's subtle. No, I don't think I've ever... Uh, faced outright discrimination. Um, I I do know that that people haven't always treated me the same as my male colleagues. I, I mean, for instance, where I really became clear of this was not so much in my research itself, um, but say sitting on committees with career and you know, oh, we must have a woman on this committee. Let's stick Athena on it. And then I just felt as if I was totally ignored. And I remember saying to the woman who at the time, 20 years ago, was looking after, if you like, equality issues and, and struggling in the university and in the administrator. And I said, having one woman on the committee really isn't very helpful. And she said, 
really. And, and I think, you know, these things we take for granted now that one woman isn't going to be able to make a difference. But at the time, we were having to learn these things. Mm. And, um, you know, I learned the hard way that if I thought there was a gender angle to something and I was the only woman in the room, I just wasn't going to be listened to. No. And if, I, if it wasn't a gender angle, I still probably wasn't being listened to. And I, I still don't know to what extent it was because I just wasn't very persuasive. I didn't have the right arguments. I didn't play by the same rules or because I was a woman. And one never knows. And I think that's one of the subtle ways in which it can be very undermining because it's easy to think, I'm just not very good at this. I shouldn't sit on mm. this. I, I don't have the political nouns or whatever it may be. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, the phrase, you, you can't be what you can't see. And um, I think that having women in positions where others can look to them and say, she's done that, I can do that too. Did you have, in terms of role models and mentors, how did that work early in your career? Obviously, there weren't very very many other women in physics at the time. No. Um, were you supported by uh, by other men or how, how did that work for you? Well, certainly, I, I went to a single-sex college in Cambridge because there weren't any mixed colleges. And I think I was very lucky in the people there. My so-called director of studies was wonderful. Um, but later on, when I was doing research, I was mentored by men, definitely. Mm. And, you know, I just, I was obviously incredibly lucky. Um, both uh, when I was in the States, my second postdoc, I had a fantastic professor who I think was completely oblivious to the fact I was a woman. I don't suppose he'd had a, a woman work with him before, but it, it just was irrelevant. As far as he was concerned, I was a brain and a pair of hands, and you know, I'm just going to get on with it. And he was brilliant, and right up until his death two or three years ago, he was still there in the background kind of thing. And then um, the head of department I mentioned, Sir Sam Edwards, was the other absolutely key person who would um, support me and encourage me. And in a way, he didn't encourage me by saying, oh, you're doing a great job, Athena. He encouraged me by just giving me things to do and letting me get on with it. Uh, he was a theorist and I was the experimentalist who was expected to to drive the programme. And he just oozed confidence that I could do it, even though I was completely out of my depth. Um, and that gave me confidence. Um, and, and so, you know, in later years, I probably went to him more with explicit questions, again, perhaps on the political front. But early on, it was just believed I could do it and let me get on with it and that is very empowering it is yeah people having confidence in you is 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 very empowering isn't it to to tell you that even if they're not overtly saying you're doing a great job the fact that they give you more and challenging tasks to do shows that implicitly doesn't it yeah Mm. yeah um and and you know we talk a lot about the discrepancies in the number of women these days who are taking phds compared to the number of women that end up in academic positions particularly in science but across academia in general as well um you know there seems to be a high attrition rate of of women um clearly childcare and and maternity leave is often um flagged at that point as being an area that where women are lost in inverted commas to science um do you your husband was you know the primary carer of your children and um you've managed to balance being a mother with having an extremely successful career do you see that as um 
a major issue amongst the women that come through is your PhD students and then and then going on with their careers? Or do you feel that there's other um, factors in play with that attrition rate as well? I think there <clears throat> I think there are certainly other factors that, that are in play. But I think sometimes women don't believe, certainly in academia. I mean, I think if you went into industry, attitudes would be very different. But in academia, I think people see the intensity with which you have to work and just think, I can't do it. I remember a female student of mine saying to my face, well, I just don't think you can stay in academia and have children. And I said, but look at me, I've done it. And she still would not believe it was viable. And she went off to a a think tank. And I think policy is a hugely important area too. So fine. But um, I think there are many reasons and it is kind of facile to say it's all down to, to maternity and child care. I don't believe that. I think it is that women sometimes use that as, if you like, the excuse to get out because they are still finding the atmosphere not necessarily as supportive as they would like. Um, And I think, you know, again, if I come back to unconscious bias, if you have five people submitting CVs or 50 or however many submitting CVs for a, a permanent position or a fellowship or whatever, and there is unconscious bias going on, and the the women are just sort of subtly downgraded in the panel's eyes, then women are going to fall out of the system, whatever their strengths. Now, I think people are becoming much more aware of the um, possibility of that happening, and I think there are many steps being taken to prevent that happening. But I think in the last you know, 15 years or something, I'm sure that has had an impact that... Um, I mean, to give you an example, um, in a university other than mine and um, actually in an engineering faculty, the the Pro Vice-Chancellor made a decision to encourage every time a lectureship came up that if the appointments panel were uncertain whether to include the woman in the long listing or not, they should include her. So this is, if you like, positive action, not positive discrimination. They just kept someone in when previously they might not have done. Mm. And he found that one act... Uh, led to more women being appointed and, and it was clear that that women were being sort of excluded on not good grounds and when they were kept in the system and then brought to interview they then shone. I think that's so often the case that women's people skills and interview skills are perhaps what shines them through it during the the phase that phase of a job application whereas if their CV is is binned at the first hurdle as it were that then perhaps they never get the chance to show the skills that they have um i hate i hate the phrase soft skills but um it's perhaps pertinent it's not only that i think um so in cambridge we have a system where people applying for promotion can have their cvs looked at by sort of mentors who are nothing to do with their department and i remember reading one once where the woman had led a spectacularly successful team and she wrote the whole thing as if it was a team effort not that she had led it hmm. And, you know, it didn't take much to to get her to rewrite the CV. So what she had done was centre stage. And I think sometimes women are, you know, again, this is cultural upbringing. We are brought up to be modest and not to to boast and all the rest of it. And I think sometimes we we are capable of writing in a a kind of downbeat way, which doesn't really um, enable achievements to shine through. I think that's so true, isn't it? And getting women and even girls at a younger age to be 
less modest about their achievements you know boys seem quite happy to shout about everything they've done and getting girls to do the same can sometimes be quite difficult can't it yeah and I, and I believe this is just the way we bring the children up and the way the teachers interact and all the rest of it you know I don't believe it's down to our chromosomes just moving on to a slightly different area um I just want to talk about science communication a little bit um part of encouraging people into science and particularly at school is seem to be making science accessible and um, interesting and fun and, and open to the general public. But, but I have heard you speaking before about the, um, the difficulties of communicating complex scientific ideas simply and, and really quite how the press can get it wrong, particularly at higher level <coughs> research. Um, you'll often get a headline that's quite disingenuous when you read the actual research um I mean I'm from a biological background and sometimes I read newspaper articles and I just think gosh they've made that far too simplistic and that is not what that research is saying at all and yet you end up with the general public taking home that you know broccoli cures cancer or broccoli doesn't cure cancer or whatever and I'm just wondering how you feel that that is improving or worsening in physics in particular you know you've got very complex ideas and conveying them very simply is quite challenging. Um, it is, but I think biology or biomedical science does have a problem because people are so desperately looking for cures for Alzheimer's or cancer or whatever. Um, and so a scientist who has a small success in a test tube or even in a mouse, you know, is suddenly sort of hyped up in this, in this way that they may very well feel uncomfortable about. Um, and to say, no, 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 I've only done it in a test tube. Well, then it's it's not newsworthy. Physics seems to escape that to some extent. I mean, things like, oh, I don't know, the Higgs boson or gravity waves or something get immense coverage uh, in ways that are, if you like, quite sensible. They are genuine discoveries. Um, they are what they are. And the press get behind it. So I think in that sense, physics gets quite well represented and even if no one listening to an explanation of gravity waves really understands it, they still get the basic idea that something fundamental has been discovered. Now, of course, my kind of physics is utterly not like that. And, uh, you know, I have occasionally had terrible headlines um, because the stuff I do can be trivialised quite easily. If you're working on starch, you know, I've been accused of doing domestic science and things. Uh, and it's really annoying. But I think physics as a discipline actually comes out of it quite well compared with, with biomedical science, where I think the press are always trying to find. I mean, The Guardian today had a story, diagnostic test for autism. Yeah, um, you I, know, I read that headline this morning and I thought, oh, we need to read about that. <laughs> well, you know, I assume that actually if you read small print, it's not that at all. And, and of course, the sub-editors are largely to blame for headlines in general. Um and it's not the scientist's fault. I think, I suppose what I feel, in a way, what I would like the public to take away is how scientists do their science as much as what they have or haven't discovered. Because I think the process of science seems very mysterious. If you gave up science as soon as you could, you may not really understand what science is all about or why it matters. And to some extent, I think that's an important message to get across. Is do gravity waves matter to, to someone in the street? Probably not a great deal. Um, it's not clear to me that, that the immediate impact is pretty significant. Um, but, but nevertheless, 
they need to understand why scientists are doing these things and what what the importance of blue skies research versus making a better widget is, for instance. I, I think there's some sort of fundamental, more philosophical questions that, that it is important to portray. Is there anything else that you would like to mention or talk about or anything else that you're working uh, on or things to do with Athena Forum or European Research Council, things like that, that you've got anything interesting or, or significant happening right now? Well, I mean... If we get onto the European Research Council, we get onto Brexit, and I think we can all agree that Brexit is not likely to be particularly good for UK science. Um, but it's probably, you know, so much has been said about that already, about the importance of science being international, working with people from different countries with different skills. I mean, it's all part of the diversity angle, and we're in danger of losing that. Mm. And do you think that... Um because I read your blog post about the, the funding from the Euro- European Research Council, do you feel that the, Europe- that the European angle of things contributes significantly towards gender diversity as well? Or is it more to do with the, the quality of the, the funding and the people that they provide in terms of breadth of diversity in general in academia? Um, I think the ERC has tried very hard to keep its eye on the the gender angle in a way that the UK research councils are perhaps only just catching up, but they haven't cracked it. And I think that comes back to the fact the problems lie in many different places. I I used to think, oh, it's terrible. Panels are biased against women. That's why women get fewer grants. And um, I, I suspect that every research council now works incredibly hard at unconscious bias training and everything, UK, European, whatever. And I suspect that the problems are actually as often back in the institutions where perhaps women don't ask for help with writing their research grants and men do, um, or men are more readily mentored or whatever. And you know, trying to tease out where the problems are, so difficult because mm. they will be multifarious. Uh, but certainly I think diversity in every aspect matters. Gender is just one of them. Um, and some of the others are harder to quantify because you don't sit down and say, well, this person came through the American system and this person came through the China system. And you know that's why we've got a good team. You don't analyse it like that, but it probably is relevant. The outcome of Brexit and its effect on both the funding and diversity of science, particularly through the European Research Council, or ERC, is yet to be determined. But this is an area about which a lot of scientists have deep concerns, and it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Many thanks to Athene, though, for joining us today. You can find her on Twitter, at Athene Donald. And, fi- and to find her blog, just search for OCAMS, that's O-C-C-A-M-S, typewriter, Athene Donald, and you'll find it. Links will be on our Twitter. That's all for this time, and thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. Please subscribe if you haven't already, and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favourite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word, as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing the Ceiling, and we'll hopefully see you next time.